isn't it interesting? A whole chapter is spent on making sure that females are taken care of in terms of inheritance. Show me another ancient culture where that happens. It's one of those opportunities you have as a Bible teacher to just show God is not bound by the customs of his age. There are eternal norms of justice and kindness that he applies. And look at how he cares for these women. Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible, sponsored by Crossway. I'm Nancy Guthrie, and I welcome you to this second part of a two-part conversation with my guest today, Ligon Duncan, who is Chancellor and CEO of Reformed Theological Seminary. We're sitting together at a church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we're talking through the Old Testament book of Numbers. So, Ligon, thank you for what you've already uh, taught us, helped us with in the first part of this conversation. We look forward to what you have to teach us in the second part. Looking forward to talking with you again. We left off in the middle of the book of Numbers. We were talking about a theme that we see in the book of Numbers, or we, I guess we could call it just a repeated reality in the book of Numbers that we would like to think was just Old Testament people, but we know it's us too. And that is uh, God's people are a, a a people, a bunch of complainers. Mm. They're here in the wilderness. You told us in the first episode that really the Hebrew title of this book is In the Wilderness. So here are God's people. They have been uh, given the law. They've been given instructions for cleansing themselves so they can do, as you said in the first episode, they can go to battle against idolatry. And yet they're there in the wilderness. God has provided for them, and yet they complain. They rebel. God's given them this godly leader, Moses, and they don't want him. What's the significance of that as we teach through this book, both their rebellion against this leader they have been given, as well as Moses' response to their rejection of him as their leader? Well, the, and that's a story, of course, that's not just numbers. That's Exodus as well, um, and and you know, and and that'll continue on in the rest of the history of Israel uh, as well. But the leader, and especially Moses, Moses is a picture of the mediator in that regard. Moses is a picture of Christ's mediation because Moses mediates God's word to his people and then represents God's people to God. And so throughout the story of Moses, Moses has that mediatorial role. So when uh, the children of Israel sinned with a golden calf, what did Moses do? He interceded as a mediator for them. He'll do that in this passage when they grumble against God and God is ready to bring judgment. Moses will intercede. So the children of Israel's disobedience towards Moses is actually a picture of their disobedience to God. Their attitude, just, just, like, just like when a faithful Bible teacher is teaching the Bible and people reject that teaching, it's not the Bible. The Bible teacher didn't come up with that teaching. God came up with it. Bible teachers just saying what God said in the word. So when somebody rejects that teaching, they're not rejecting the Bible teacher ultimately. They're rejecting God. So that's what's happening over and over with the rejection of Moses. And the interesting thing is, though, you not only have the dynamic of the people failing to follow the leaders, you have the dynamic of the leaders failing 
to follow God's word. And it happens to Moses, it happens to Aaron, it happens to Miriam. It's what, what's, what's fascinating is nobody comes out of this narrative smelling like a rose. Nobody. Not Moses, not Miriam, not Aaron, not the people, nobody. They, they all have aspects of failure, some more serious than others, but all that have consequences. I know J. Sidlow Baxter once said that the great theme of the book of Numbers is behold the kindness and severity of God. In, in responding to this kind of repeated rebellion, on, on the one hand, marvelous instances of God's forbearance and loving kindness and mercy, and then terrifying, breathtaking judgments of God against unfaithfulness. Show us how Moses gives us a picture yeah. of Christ as mediator. And perhaps you can demonstrate for us how you might present that. Turn to Numbers chapter 14 and, and look at verses 13 and following. And then let me take you back and give you some background on it. So here's Numbers 14, verse 13 and following. And Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he killed them in the wilderness. Now, it's, it's, you're sitting there and you're listening to Moses, and it sounds like Moses is trying to talk God out of what he's doing. Now, how do you interpret that? Does that mean, for instance, that Moses has a greater heart for God's people than God does. That that he would be coming up with arguments. Now, see, Lord, if you don't kill us here, you will be considered to be great by the Egyptians. But if you do kill us here, all the nations will say, well, the reason he killed him is because he wasn't able to do what he said. So now it sounds manipulative. It's, or it sounds like Moses is trying to outsmart God. So that only works, though, if you think that Moses cares more about God's people than God does. Now, the way you know that's not the case is you go back to the initial examples of Moses' intercession that you see in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, this is exactly what Moses has to do after the golden calf and in his engagement with Pharaoh. But if you look early in the book of Exodus, when God comes to Moses and says, uh, Moses, I want you to go and, uh, and speak to my people, and I want you to be their mediator, and I want, you to, I want you to deliver them out of Egypt, Moses basically says, I'm not interested. So it's God in his love for his people who has to prompt and has to work even against Moses' will, to get him to serve in this mediatorial role. Now, that God who had to you know, just almost drag 
Moses grudgingly into his job has not suddenly become less concerned about his people than Moses is. So what in the world is all this language of Moses saying, God, you'll get glory if you don't judge them. The nations will not give you glory if you kill them or if you kill us here in the wilderness. What is going on with that? Well, (laughs) Moses is a picture of the mediator. Um, When Jesus is interceding for us with God, he is not trying to get God to love his people. Um, Jesus is our mediator because God loves his people. That Jesus is the is the is the conclusive evidence of the Father's love for us. So when Jesus says to the Father, uh, "Father, I want them to enjoy the love that you and I have enjoyed from the foundation of the world," John seventeen, Jesus is not introducing that idea to God for the first time. Jesus is there because that's what God sent him into the world to do. And and so in, in his mediatorial role, what he is doing is he's actually reflecting back to God his own purposes and concerns. That's exactly what Moses is doing. If you will read those intercessions throughout Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, like that, it'll completely change how you read them. Suddenly you realize, oh, this isn't Moses trying to twist God's arm into not judging or into uh, blessing his people. This is actually Moses reflecting God's purposes back to him in intercession, just like Jesus does when he intercedes for us. So in that way, that's one of the, one of the easiest ways to get from Moses as mediator to Jesus as mediator. Um, because it's very, very clear in in the book of Hebrews helps you here. You know, the, the book of Hebrews here, makes it clear that Jesus is greater than Moses. Well, why is the author of Hebrews making that comparison? Well, because he understands this dynamic in the life of Moses. And he understands that Moses is the is the the foreshadowing of the intercession of Jesus. So that's one way that you get to Jesus from Moses' intercession. Well, we get here then to chapter 13, uh, it says spies are sent into Canaan. And I always kind of wonder why our translation uses that word spies because we have an idea what a, a right. spy does. And right. I'm not sure that's exactly yeah. what they were yeah, it's not said James to Bond. do, is it? Yeah, right, yeah. 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 How do we explain to people what's I mean, happening in, here? In this, you know, here they, they've all the way up to chapter 10, they've been at Sinai. Now, here we are in chapter 13, and we're on the boundary of the land. And what's the function of the spies? The function of the spies is this is not beautiful. The, the, the people of God are nervous. They've got, they've got battles to fight. I mean, is it really worth it to go into that land? The function of the spies is to come back with the evidence of their eyes and say, the land is good. The land is good. The, the land that your God has made for you and is going to bring you into, it's a good land. Trust him, people. Yeah, we've got hard stuff to do. We've got battles to fight. It's, it's worth it. It's a good land. So the, the, the function of the spies is to confirm God's goodness in his providence. Now, sadly, what happens is the people rebel here. And consequently, though from chapter 10 to chapter 13, you have gone from Sinai to the boundary of the land. Now, because of the rebellion of chapter 14, the people of God will wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And an entire generation 
including Moses, will never go into the land. So the, the, the spies are the rebuke to that rebellion and unbelief because they give, it's not even God saying, hey, just trust me, the land is good. He, he, he lets representatives of the people go in and come back out and say, okay, we don't just have to take the Lord's, Lord, uh, the, the Lord's word for it. We've seen it. It's good. You know, the people of God have had to walk by faith. Now he's going to let them walk by sight through the eyes of the spies, and they still won't do it. And again, it shows you the heart battle that's going on there. There's an idolatry there. They don't trust God. They don't trust his providence. They're hard things again. They're scared. They don't trust his goodness. And so the function of the spies, I think, one, at least one of the huge functions of the spies, is to say to the people of God, he, he's not led us on a wild goose chase. This is a good land that he's prepared for us. You can trust him even though we have hard things to do. We're people like that, aren't we? I mean, it, we have the we have a promise. We have these promises from God, and we've been told that there is an inheritance waiting for yeah. us in heaven. And the whole of the Bible is calling us to believe that the inheritance that we're going to receive when we go into God's land is going to be worth all of the struggle in the wilderness that we're living in now. But we find it very hard to believe that the promises of God that await us are really there for us and that he is going to be that good to give them to us. And so what do we do here in the wilderness? We're complaining that he's not really taking care of us in the way that he ought. And that's why this story is our story. And again, I think that's an encouragement for a Bible teacher. There are so many spiritual issues that everybody in that room will go, that's my issue. I'm, I'm dealing with that right now. You're not going to go to the book of Numbers and say, that doesn't have anything to do with me. You, what you're going to get into Numbers, and you're going to go, oh, my heavens. How could people... 3,400, 3,500 years ago have been going through the same heart battles that I'm going through today, right now, with my family life and my marriage and my vocation, with my health, you know, whatever else it might be. How could they have been going through the same kind of battles? You know, well, we're God's people. We're, we're you know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And so the book of Numbers is going to offer the Bible teacher an opportunity to do some heart surgery. So the spies report, we can't go in. And once again, and then we have this scene where Moses intercedes for the people. And then I guess I always kind of picture that maybe this book is just going to tell us things that happened all the way along but am I right, Ligon, that here what's coming up is a section that's basically 40 years worth then, but we don't necessarily have a lot of detail of what happens in those 40 years. And we might think they're wandering from place to place, and they are doing some movement, but there's also yeah. – they're pretty much just staying yeah. right there, aren't they? And there's uh, – the, the, other, the other thing to note about that is um, the, though there is great story – in the book of Numbers, it's not all story. And the, the you've got to sort of put the story together yourself. So we, you know, we love and appreciate redemptive history. And understanding the flow 
of redemptive history is really important for biblical interpretation. But the book of Numbers isn't just a redemptive history, and it's selective in how it records that history. By the way, just like the Gospels are. The Gospels, you know, sometimes we say the Gospels are the biography of of Jesus' life and ministry. That's true at one level. At one level, it's very untrue. Think of how much time the Gospels spend on the last week of Jesus' life. The um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, spend about a quarter of their time on the last week of Jesus' life. John spends a third to a half of his time on the last week of Jesus' life. They had a theological agenda. The theological agenda was we needed to understand the meaning and significance of Jesus' death. And so we really, really needed to understand what went on the last week of his life. So also... This history, as you say, it doesn't give a day-by-day account of 40 years. You get the rebellion, you get the wandering, and then, you know, Numbers chapter 15, laws about sacrifices, Mm -hmm. laws about unintentional sins, and and just no attention whatsoever to the day-to-day details of what it would have been like to be in the wilderness for that long. Why? Because there's a theological agenda that's being pursued. And so why would you suddenly go into laws about sacrifices and sins? Well, let's see, what did we just do? Uh, We just rebelled against the Lord. We just got defeated in battle because we didn't trust the Lord. And then suddenly laws about sins and laws about sacrifices. That makes perfect sense that you would do that. So you're not being given a chapter-by-chapter unfolding of a story or of a history or of a record of the time in the wilderness. You're being given theological lessons that are drawn from the wandering of Israel on their journey in the wilderness and that are drawn from the laws and and the rituals that are being appointed. And it's all didactic. I mean, it's God is intending to teach us stuff um, out of that. Finally, beginning in chapter 21, yeah. we are, there is a new generation, and they yeah. are preparing to uh, now finally move into the land. But we have this scene that when you just read it on the face of it, um, the people complain, and Moses and Aaron, it says that they gather the people. And we read in chapter 20, verse 10, that Moses says, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water yeah. Shall we bring water yeah. for you out of the rock? If we don't look too deeply, because what this is the scene, because Moses strikes this rock, yeah. that here is this man who has yeah. led people out of Egypt. He has been with them these 40 years in the desert, and this is the scene in which God tells them, because you have sinned here, you are not going to go into the promised land. And, you know, our natural sense of fairness, we just want to say, well, that doesn't seem like that big a deal. And the people we're teaching, they're probably going to think, wow, I'm not sure what I think of God here because this seems somewhat capricious. So help us understand how we're going to teach what's happening here. Well, I mean, I I think it's good to face that particular sense of tension because I I think it's right to be sympathetic with Moses. He's had a hard congregation to pastor and in the worst kinds of circumstances, and and it's very understandable. Again, this is one of those passages— if if you were attempting to make up a story 
of a holy man that led a people out of one land into another. This is not a story you would tell. This is one of those passages that lets me know this is true. You wouldn't have said this about Moses. What in, in all ancient cultures, you have idealized figures, idealized kings, idealized priests, idealized prophets, you know, and, and what, what, how are they painted? They're painted as these sort of serene beings sort of floating 10 feet off the ground without the, the trials and the struggles and the difficulties of normal people. Moses is not painted that way. Moses is given a full warts biography uh, from the beginning of his life and ministry uh, in Exodus all the way to the end. And so th- this is one of those passages where I look at and I say, there's, nobody, there's no way somebody made that up. That's, that's there because it's true and because it happened. The other thing that strikes me about it is Moses ends up doing in his frustration exactly what the people had been doing. And there's the, there's the reverse side of his picture as the mediator because he now is, becomes embodied in one person, a representative of his people's failure. The, the, the people of God became frustrated by their circumstances and did not treat God as holy. Moses became frustrated by his circumstances and did not treat God as holy. Now there's the illustration that shows you the discontinuity between Jesus and Moses. Because Jesus, in his mediatorial role, faced the same kinds of recalcitrance. I mean, just go back and think through the Gospels again. How often Jesus is dealing with thick, stubborn, stumbling, sinning disciples. And if it had been you and me, we would have lost our tempers. And Jesus is remarkable in his refusal to not trust God in the midst of those things. Even when he has to instruct and rebuke his disciples, he's always respectful towards his heavenly father. Moses blows his top here. And when he blows his top, it's directed against the rock that represents the presence of God guiding his people through the wilderness. And so he is, you, you said it in the way you told the story, what, what shall we do? You know, as if Moses can do this on his own. And then suddenly, instead of speaking to the rock, which is the picture of the provision of God, of life-giving water to his people in this arid wilderness, instead of speaking to it, he strikes that rock. And it, it is the, it's the embodiment of exactly what God's people have been doing in the wilderness. And at that point says, you know, God says that, that, I, that will not be forgotten. That will not be forgotten. What do we say to that person who raises their hand and says, that just doesn't seem like that big of a deal that yeah. he hit a rock. Yeah. Yeah. So why, why would that be the thing that God would yeah. say that's going to keep, prevent you from going into the promised land? Think of the striking of our Lord by the Roman soldiers uh, in the Gospels, and um, you know, think of yourself in that in that position. I think it's a it, it's a picture of a treatment of yes, it's symbolic. Yes, it's a theophany. Yes, it's a representative expression of God's presence with these people. But think of striking. God's person himself and think of the striking of the son of God and um, 
Think of the father's response to that. I think it is is very much tied up with what Jesus endures for us. And again, there's 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 another connection with Christ out of this passage. And you know, it's it, it's one of those passages where it says more than they could have possibly known. But in the light of the fullness of Revelation, it comes clear how significant this was. Here, here's the mediator striking the one who's appointed him as the mediator. And whereas our mediator is going to bear the stripes of the one who made him mediator. So Moses is Jesus in reverse at this point. He's failed to show that picture appropriately of mediation when the people needed it most. Here, here's where they need it the most. They need to see God's good provision for them. And here's the mediator striking out against the provider. So there's this sense of holiness, which is transgressed at this point. God is just not treated as holy. In chapter 21 of Numbers, I think of this chapter as presenting us with the grandest opportunity mm-hmm to uh, give out the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just the Sunday school story that we heard. And I'm talking about this story of the bronze serpent. serpent. I mean, once again, when we get to chapter 21 uh, and we read in verse 4, the people became impatient along the way. They spoke against God and against Moses. And once again, why have you brought us... Up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. There's no food and water. We loathe this worthless food. I mean, every day they've been stepping out of their tent, having done nothing to feed themselves. And God has provided them with manna. And they're in the desert, and he's providing them with water. And they're complaining against them. And then we read in verse 6 that then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And Jesus will go to that story when he's trying to explain the new birth to Nicodemus at night in the Gospel of John, and right before he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So hugely important passage, one that Jesus does draw a direct line to himself with. Isn't it interesting that there is there's both faith and repentance in this because what do the people have to look at? They have to look at the representation of what's been killing them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the serpents have been killing them because of their sin. They've got to look at that representation and they've got to believe, they've got to trust God that God is going to spare them. And, you know, and, and Jesus says to Nicodemus, let me explain this, that even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And and, and you think of he made him to who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Jesus just saying, I'll become the sin bearer. Um, you know, what what caused your death, what caused your just judgment, I'm going to bear that. Um, I'm going to bear your sin, and I'm going to bear the judgment against that so that you can be healed like the people in the wilderness are healed. And, I mean, no wonder Nicodemus was just 
Okay, I don't understand any of this uh, that night. What mind blowing teaching? But it's true when the when the when the Bible teacher gets to that story, you've got a story that's authorized by Jesus Himself to take you to the gospel and explain the gospel. So you can go right to Jesus, but it seems to me also you can set this in context of the whole story of the Bible because what was the promise of the gospel in Genesis three yeah. fifteen? <clears throat> To the yeah. serpent. Yeah. He's going to crush your yeah. head. Yeah. Yeah. And then what is it that these people are to look at? As you said, yeah. it's the picture of sin, this serpent, yeah. the sin that's been killing him. Yeah. But he's mounted to a pole, so yeah. his head is crushed. Yeah. And yeah. what is it Jesus accomplishes on yeah. the cross? He crushes the head Amen. Amen. of the serpent. Amen. It's a beautiful place Amen. to help our people it see is. that theme run throughout the whole of the Bible, is it not? Amen. Yeah. So as we move forward in numbers, we have the sense that their their uh, time in the wilderness is beginning to come to a close. Yeah, we're already in the section where they're at the edge. They're at of the, the edge. Land. So they're yeah. beginning to have some skirmishes yeah. with people not yet in Canaan. That's going to come about in the book of Joshua. But yet they're beginning to have some skirmishes with some people around um, Canaan. What do we want to bring out from this section? The Balaam story is a really important story. It goes on for a long time. Uh, Balaam, Mm -hmm. and it it picks up in chapter 22, and it runs on through uh, chapter 25. And the the interaction between Balaam and the people of God is very important. Balaam is is, is a prophet, and he's hired to uh, by an opposing king to to try and curse the the people of God. It's one of those great contests. You know, can God deliver on what He has promised His people, even with forces and even powers and principalities arrayed against His people and against Him? And God delivers gloriously here. And there's so many. You know, the Bible is a very funny book. Um, here, look, Numbers 22 is an example of it. Um, what 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 are what are prophets supposed to what's what power are prophets supposed to have? Well, they're, they're supposed to have spiritual insights into unseen reality that other people don't have. So, this prophet that's going to be arrayed against God's people has a donkey that sees spiritual reality more clearly than he does. Now, is that just not a picture of God mocking the, this? Prophet, you know, so you're a prophet. You're going to oppose me. You're going to oppose my people. Well, your donkey's smarter than you are because you're Sometimes donkey. Sometimes with the Bible, we just oh. don't, we don't, we take it so seriously. We don't recognize. We're meant to laugh at that. It's absolutely true. And by the way, that story, just like the story you brought up, the story of the serpent in Genesis three, you know, liberal scholars a hundred years ago would have said something like this. Well, this is clearly the example of an ateological myth being intruded into the passage. This is why women don't like snakes. It's a completely made-up story. And you want to go, do you have no sensitivity to the literary dynamics? In Genesis 1, Adam and Eve have explicitly been told by God that they are in dominion over all the animals, including the ones that crawl. Here is an animal coming to Eve and Adam and telling them what to do. So Moses is not some yokel, you know, from some, you know, ignorant tribe. Moses is doing a, a, a very sophisticated theological play. They're supposed to have dominion over the animals. 
Here's an animal having dominion over them. So, you know, it's not that they thought snakes walked around talking all the time. That, you know, if you, if you read it that way, you're missing a very sophisticated point that Moses is making. There's that role reversal in the story. The spiritual man who's supposed to see unseen reality so clearly can't see what an animal can see. So it, in this way, it's God mocking the prophet who is arrayed against these people. So that whole Balaam story has rich, rich material uh, to teach us about how God protects us against uh, forces, powers, and principalities that are arrayed against us, the superiority of God over false gods, the way that God will even use false prophets to serve his, you know, what's the psalm? Uh, the the wrath of man will praise you. You know, God will make the scheming designs of Balaam and Balak to serve the purposes of his glory in his people. So that's a that's a rich, rich passage. It's odd. It's weird. It, it'll take a lot of work for a Bible teacher. I mean, if you get parts of it and say, I don't understand that, say it. You know, it's... Do you I, ever say that? Oh, I... I w- I'll, a story that I'll share that'll help Bible teachers. When I started teaching it at Reform Seminary, I told my my longtime uh, mentor O. Palmer Robertson, who was an Old Testament professor. Um, I had been very influenced by him, and I called him up and I said, "I'm going to be teaching at RTS, and I've decided I'm not going to allow questions in class, and I'm not going to allow questions because people ask stupid questions, and because people will use questions." to press their own agendas. And uh, so I think I've decided that. And, um, and, and, and I had heard that done in seminary from seminarians. You know, seminarians just ask you crazy questions and then push their own agenda. And Dr. Robertson said, this is exactly how he said it, no, Ligon, you are going to allow questions. It wasn't a suggestion. <laughs> he said, no, Ligon, you are going to allow questions. And he said, because, yes, some questions will not be good, but many will be and they will push you. They will push you to have to go back and study. And secondly, sometimes you're going to have to say, I don't know. And he said it will be very good for your students to know that their professor does not know everything and that he may have to go and study and study and study and study before he has a good answer to a question. And that was such good advice. And I've had to say, I don't know a lot over the years, but that I don't know has prompted really good Bible study. So Bible teachers out there, don't be afraid to say, I would study as hard as you can, know as much as you can. And then when somebody asks you a really good question that you don't have the answer to, I don't know. I'll go work on that. Yeah. Uh, in chapter 26, a census again. <laughs> and so we come to this. Uh, once again, we've got all those hard names, but I, I suppose the the key thing here is understanding why there is another census. The book begins with a census, and then an entire generation dies in the wilderness. And now, as they are on the edge of the promised land, ready to go again, God cares about every one of his people. And so they're numbered again a second time because there's a new generation here. And uh, so, again, it makes sense why the book does what it does in the overall story. Just like we did in Exodus, and as we've already read in Leviticus, and we've seen before in Numbers, we go into instructions about offerings and sacrifices 
and feasts and vows. You kind of get the sense at this point that these things are pretty important to God. Well, and notice, notice, here's an example of these. Look at chapter 35. Um, The kinds of laws and ritual instructions here that are being given at the end of Numbers are clearly not for a wilderness setting. They are for a settled situation where the people are going to, they're not going to be nomads. They're going to be settled in a land. They're going to have, uh, there, there will be city life. They haven't had city life since Goshen, you know, if you can call that city life. So they're going to have city life for the first time. And you look at chapter 35 and suddenly, okay, there are going to be cities for the Levites. The Levites don't have land to farm. So there have got to be cities provided for the Levites to live in. And there are going to be cities of refuge. So that there's going to be a new legal provision for for you know in in this day and age there were there were blood feuds that lasted for generations and uh so there is a legal provision for cities of refuge where people can go and find sanctuary that can help put a check to these generational blood feuds that go along between families and so all of this clearly anticipates the settled life of the people of God in the land. So again, it shows God is a good lawmaker. Um, He had given a lot of commands in Exodus that especially pertain to life in the wilderness. At the end of Numbers, and then again in Deuteronomy, the, the laws are clearly anticipating a settled situation where there are cities, where there are farms, where people own houses. You're not living in a tent. You're in a house. The laws are adapted to the circumstances of God's people. God's a good lawgiver. And so even the book itself, you know, if you're making this story up hundreds of years after the fact, you think that up? I, I don't know how you make that up unless this isn't happening. This is you wouldn't think to put the book together that way if that weren't a real existential concern. How are we going to live? We know how to live in the wilderness. We know the laws for the wilderness, but what happens when we live in cities? Well, by the way, I have laws for you on how you're supposed to live in cities. So I, I love the way the book ends because it's clearly anticipating the new life that they're going to have in the promised land. But it also ends, I guess, with a sense of suspense. I mean, when we read the very last verse, these are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel on the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. So that's signaling to us they're about ready to go in the land. Uh, We've seen throughout how they've acted, (laughs) reacted throughout in the wilderness, how they have complained and failed and yet been saved. Mercy has been shown over and over again there in the wilderness. But I guess the book ends with a sense of suspense. Will they get there? Well, that's true. What's going to happen there? How do you think we bring our teaching of the book of Numbers to a proper close? Well, I I wouldn't forget the story of uh, Zelophehad's daughters. Right at because, the end. Because, you know, that... that is that not fascinating that at the very end of the book you are you are hanging on the edge of your seat it's like a sequel okay you've gotten to the end of the second star wars and you're waiting for resolution to come and it is like that in the last two verses isn't it interesting a whole chapter is spent on making sure that females 
are taken care of in terms of inheritance. Show me another ancient culture where that happens. It's one of those opportunities you have as a Bible teacher to just show God is not bound by the customs of his age. There are eternal norms of justice and kindness that he applies, and look at how he cares for these women. And I mentioned at the beginning of our first episode that you are a churchman. I failed to mention what a scholar you are, and certainly that has come across here, and that you are a great encourager. And I said you love to laugh, but I, I left out one other thing, and that is that you love to sing. I do love to sing. There's one song in particular that as we teach through the book of Numbers, it would seem a tragedy if we did not sing with our people, if for no other reason that every time they sang this song through the rest of their lives, they would picture these people in the wilderness that they learned about in Numbers, don't you think? Absolutely. The the wonderful Welsh hymn written by William Williams uh, to the tune Cumranda. Uh, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah, recounts stories from the wilderness. The first line hinting at some stories from Exodus. The second line hinting at stories from Numbers. And then really the third line having us right where we are now at the end of the book of Numbers on the verge of going into the promised land. And uh, the second stanza... Open now the crystal fountain whence the healing stream doth flow. The, you know, the reference to the provision of water for the people of God in the midst of the wilderness. The fire and cloudy pillar lead me all my journey through. So that going back to, we heard references to that fire and cloudy pillar in Numbers. And of course, it goes all the way back to Exodus as well. So Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah is a hymn we sang over and over again as we work through the book of Numbers. You want to sing it? Well, let's do. And maybe if you, wherever you are, in your car, in your office, maybe not if you're running on the treadmill, but <laughs> if, you're, if you're walking in the park, just sing it along with us. Guide me, O Thou Great Jehovah, Pilgrim through this barren land I am weak, but thou art mighty Hold me with thy powerful hand Bread of heaven, bread of heaven Feed me till I want no more Feed me till I want no more. Open now the crystal fountain whence the healing stream doth flow. Let the fire and cloudy pillar lead me all my journey through. Strong deliverer, strong deliverer, be thou still my strength and shield. Be thou still my strength and shield. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fear subside. 
Bear me through the swelling current, land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises, songs of praises, I will ever give to thee. I will ever give to thee. I can hear it now, Ligon. Every other person I ask to be my guest on Help Me Teach the Bible, their first question they're going to ask me is, are you going to make me sing? <laughs> Don't you think? That's a, that's a good tag. That could be a little trademark, <laughs> like driving around in the car doing karaoke. You know, there it could you be go. the Nancy Guthrie version <laughs> of that, right? There you go. Well, let's close this way, Ligon. There are some people listening to this that are perhaps considering teaching through the book of Numbers or working on it right now. And maybe they feel a little intimidated hmm. by that prospect because they love God's word hmm. and they want to handle it rightly. Hmm. Would you just speak directly to the person hmm. who is preparing to teach and give them a word of instruction, perhaps a word of encouragement? One, the people in numbers that you're going to meet are like us. So you, you'll, you'll, yes, some things will be strange, but you'll say, I recognize these people. Two, this is in God's word. He wants his people to understand it. This is, this is in the book of the people of God, and it wasn't written for scholars. Uh, it wasn't written for experts. It was written for his people. And so when you have the privilege of working hard to understand it so that you can communicate it and teach it, you are helping do exactly what the thing was meant to do in the first place, which was teach and encourage the people of God. Three, um, I, would, I would say this. This book so beautifully emphasizes God's providence over us and his patience with us that when we're struggling and tempted to complain like they did, we're given good reason not to doubt his providence over us and to see his faithfulness to us despite our own unfaithfulness. And that's something we really need to know today. So all the hard work, uh, I mean, there are great resources for you to use. You were talking about Ian Dugan's uh, more recent uh, commentary on numbers. There are great materials out there. Utilize those great materials and jump in and teach it because God's people need to hear it. Thanks so much, Ligon. This has been a joy to dive into this biblical book with you. Thanks, Nancy. Thank you for helping us to teach the Bible. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian Books and Tracts, including women's ministry in the local church by Dr. Duncan, as well as a number of helps, including that preaching the word commentary on the book of Numbers by Ian Duguid. Learn more about Crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org. <laughs>